0: September 23rd through to September 29th of Morning and Evening, Daily Readings. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dave. Morning and Evening, Daily Readings by Charles Spurgeon. Morning, September 23rd. Accepted in the Beloved. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. What a state of privilege! It includes our justification before God, but the term acceptance in the Greek means more than that. It signifies that we are the objects of divine compliance, nay, even of divine delight. How marvellous that we, worms, Mortals, sinners, should be the objects of divine love, but it is only in the Beloved. Some Christians seem to be accepted in their own experience, at least that is their apprehension. When their spirit is lively and their hopes bright, they think God accepts them, for they feel so high, so heavenly-minded, so drawn above the earth. But when their souls cleave to the dust, they are the victims of the fear that they are no longer accepted. If they could but see that all their high joys do not exalt them, and all their low despondencies do not really depress them in their father's sight, but that they stand accepted in one who never alters, in one who is always the beloved of God, always perfect, always without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, how much happier they would be, and how much more they would honour the Saviour. Rejoice then, believer, in this, thou art accepted in the Beloved. Thou lookest within, and thou sayest, There is nothing acceptable here. But look at Christ, and see if there is not everything acceptable there. Thy sins trouble thee, but God has cast thy sins behind his back, and thou art accepted in the Righteous One. Thou hast to fight with corruption, and to wrestle with temptation. But thou art already accepted in him who has overcome the powers of evil. The devil tempts thee. Be of good cheer. He cannot destroy thee. For thou art accepted in him who has broken Satan's head. Know by full assurance thy glorious standing. Even glorified souls are not more accepted than thou art. They are only accepted in heaven, in the Beloved and thou art even now accepted in Christ after the same manner. Evening, September 23rd. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe. Mark, chapter 9, verse 23. A certain man had a demoniac son, who was afflicted with a dumb spirit. The father, having seen the futility of the endeavours of the disciples to heal his child, had little or no faith in Christ. And therefore, when he was bidden to bring his son to him, he said to Jesus, If thou canst do anything, have compassion on us, and help us. Now there was an if in the question. But the poor, trembling father had put the if in the wrong place. Jesus Christ, therefore, without commanding him to retract the if, kindly puts it in its legitimate position. Nay, verily, he seemed to say, There should be no if about my power, nor concerning my willingness. The if lies somewhere else. If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. The man's trust was strengthened. He offered a humble prayer for an increase of faith, and instantly Jesus spoke the word, and the devil was cast out with an injunction never to return. There is a lesson here which we need to learn. We, like this man, often see that there is an if somewhere, but we are perpetually blundering by putting it in the wrong place. If Jesus can help me, if he can give me grace to overcome temptation, if he can give me pardon, if he can make me successful, nay, if you can believe, he both can and will. You have misplaced your if if you can confidently trust even as all things are possible to christ so shall all things be possible to you faith standeth in god's power and is robed in god's majesty it weareth the royal apparel and rideth on the king's horse for it is the grace which the king delighteth to honour girding itself with the glorious might of the all-working spirit It becomes, in the omnipotence of God, mighty to do, to dare, and to suffer. All things without limit are possible to him that believeth. My soul, canst thou believe thy Lord tonight? Morning, September 24th For I was ashamed to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way because we had spoken unto the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him. But his power and his wrath is against all them that forsake him. Ezra chapter 8 verse 22. A convoy, on many accounts, would have been desirable for the pilgrim band, but a holy shamefacedness would not allow Ezra to seek one. He feared Lest the heathen king should think his professions of faith in God to be mere hypocrisy, or imagine that the God of Israel was not able to preserve his own worshippers. He could not bring his mind to lean on an arm of flesh in a matter so evidently of the Lord, and therefore the caravan set out with no visible protection, guarded by him who is the sword and shield of his people." it is to be feared that few believers feel this holy jealousy for god even those who in a measure walk by faith occasionally mar the lustre of their life by craving aid from man it is a most blessed thing to have no props and no buttresses but to stand upright on the rock of ages upheld by the lord alone would any believers seek state endowments for their church if they remembered that the lord is dishonoured their asking caesar's aid as if the lord could not supply the needs of his own cause should we run so hastily to friends and relations for assistance if we remember that the lord is magnified by our implicit reliance upon his solitary arm my soul wait thou only upon god but says one are not means to be used assuredly they are but our fault seldom lies in their neglect Far more frequently it springs out of foolishly believing in them instead of believing in God. Few run too far in neglecting the creature's arm, but very many sin greatly by making too much of it. Learn, dear reader, to glorify the Lord by leaving means untried. If by using them thou wouldst dishonor the name of the Lord. Evening, September 24th I sleep, but my heart waketh. Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 2. Paradoxes abound in Christian experience, and here is one. The spouse was asleep, and yet she was awake. He only can read the believer's riddle who has ploughed with the heifer of his experience. The two points in this evening's text are a mournful sleepiness and a hopeful wakefulness. I sleep. Through sin that dwelleth in us, we may become lax in holy duties, slothful in religious exercises, dull in spiritual joys, and altogether supine and careless. This is a shameful state for one in whom the quickening spirit dwells, and it is dangerous to the highest degree. Even wise virgins sometimes slumber, but it is high time for all to shake off the bands of sloth. It is to be feared that many believers lose their strength as Samson lost his locks while sleeping on the lap of carnal security. With a perishing world around us, to sleep is cruel. With eternity so near at hand, it is madness. Yet we are none of us so much awake as we should be. A few thunderclaps would do us all good, and it may be unless we soon bestir ourselves, we shall have them. In the form of war or pestilence or personal bereavements and losses oh that we may leave forever the couch of fleshy ease and go forth with flaming torches to meet the coming bridegroom my heart waketh this is a happy sign life is not extinct though sadly smothered when our renewed heart struggles against our natural heaviness We should be grateful to Sovereign Grace for keeping a little vitality within the body of this death. Jesus will hear our hearts, will help our hearts, will visit our hearts, for the voice of the wakeful heart is really the voice of our Beloved, saying, Open to me. Holy zeal will surely unbar the door. O lovely attitude he stands, with melting heart and laden hands. My soul forsakes her every sin and lets the heavenly stranger in morning september twenty fifth just and the justifier of him which believeth romans chapter three verse twenty six being justified by faith we have peace with god conscience accuses no longer judgment now decides for the sinner instead of against him memory looks back upon past sins with deep sorrow for the sin but yet with no dread of any penalty to come for christ has paid the debt of his people to the last jot and tittle and received the divine receipt and unless god can be so unjust as to demand double payment for one debt no soul for whom jesus died as a substitute can ever be cast into hell it seems to be one of the very principles of our enlightened nature to believe that God is just. We feel that it must be so, and this gives us terror at first. But is it not marvelous that this very same belief that God is just becomes afterwards the pillar of our confidence and peace? If God be just, I, a sinner alone and without a substitute, must be punished. But Jesus stands in my stead and is punished for me. And now, if God be just, I, a sinner standing in Christ, can never be punished god must change his nature before one soul for whom jesus was a substitute can ever god must change his nature before one soul for whom jesus was a substitute can ever by any possibility suffer the lash of the law therefore jesus having taken the place of the believer having rendered a full equivalent to divine wrath for all that his people ought to have suffered as the result of sin the believer can shout with glorious triumph. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Not God, for he hath justified. Not Christ, for he hath died, yea, rather hath risen again. My hope lives not because I am a sinner, but because I am a sinner for whom Christ died. My trust is not that I am holy, but that being unholy, he is my righteousness. My faith rests not upon what I am, or shall be, or feel, or know, but in what Christ is, in what he has done, and in what he is now doing for me. On the lion of justice, the fair maid of hope, rides like a queen. Evening, September the 25th. Who of God is made unto us wisdom? 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 30. Man's intellect seeks after rest, and by nature seeks it apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Men of education are apt, even when converted, to look upon the simplicities of the cross of Christ with an eye too little reverent and loving. They are snarled in the old net, in which the Grecians were taken, and have a hankering to mix philosophy with revelation." The temptation with a man of refined thought and high education is to depart from the simple truth of Christ crucified and to invent, as the term is, a more intellectual doctrine. This led the early Christian churches into Gnosticism and bewitched them with all sorts of heresies. This is the root of neology and the other fine things which in days gone by were so fashionable in Germany and are now so ensnaring to certain classes of divines. Whoever you are, good reader, and whatever your education may be, if you be the Lord's, be assured, you will find no rest in philosophizing divinity. You may receive this dogma of one great thinker, or that dream of another profound reasoner, but what the chaff is to the wheat, that will these be to the pure word of God. All that reason, when best guided, Can find out is but the ABC of truth, and even that lacks certainty. While in Christ Jesus there is treasured up all the fullness of wisdom and knowledge, all attempts on the part of Christians to be content with systems such as Unitarian and broad church thinkers would approve of must fail. True heirs of heaven must come back to the grandly simple reality which makes the ploughboy's eye flash with joy and gladdens the pious pauper's heart. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Jesus satisfies the most elevated intellect when he is believingly received. But apart from him, the mind of the regenerate discovers no rest. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. A good understanding have all they that do his commandments." morning September 26th the myrtle trees that were in the bottom Zechariah chapter 1 verse 8 the vision in this chapter describes the condition of Israel in Zechariah's day but being interpreted in its aspect towards us it describes the church of God as we find it now in the world the church is compared to a myrtle grove flourishing in a valley it is hidden unobserved secreted courting no honour and attracting no observation from the careless gazer the church like her head has a glory but it is concealed from carnal eyes for the time of her breaking forth in all her splendour is not yet come the idea of tranquil security is also suggested to us for the myrtle grove in the valley is still and calm while the storm sweeps over the mountain summits tempests spend their force upon the craggy peaks of the alps but down yonder where flows the stream which maketh glad the city of our god the myrtles flourish by the still waters all unshaken by the impetuous wind how great is the inward tranquillity of god's church even when opposed and persecuted she has a peace which the world gives not and which therefore it cannot take away The peace of God, which passeth all understanding, keeps the hearts and minds of God's people. Does not the metaphor forcibly picture the peaceful, perpetual growth of the saints? The myrtle sheds not her leaves. She is always green. And the church, in her worst time, still hath a blessed verdure of grace about her. Nay, she has sometimes exhibited most verdure when her winter has been sharpest she has prospered most when her adversaries have been most severe hence the text hints at victory the myrtle is the emblem of peace and a significant token of triumph the brows of conquerors were bound with myrtle and with laurel and is not the church ever victorious is not every christian more than a conqueror through him that loved him living in peace do not the saints fall asleep in the arms of victory evening september the twenty sixth howl fir tree for the cedar is fallen Zechariah, chapter eleven verse two when in the forest there is heard the crash of a falling oak it is a sign that the woodman is abroad and every tree in the whole company may tremble lest tomorrow the sharp edge of the axe should find it out We are all like trees marked for the axe, and the fall of one should remind us that for every one, whether great as the cedar or humble as the fir, the appointed hour is stealing on apace. I trust we do not, by often hearing of death, become callous to it. May we never be like the birds in the steeple which build their nests when the bells are tolling, and sleep quietly when the solemn funeral peals are startling the air may we regard death as the most weighty of all events and be sobered by its approach it ill behoves us to sport while our eternal destiny hangs on a thread the sword is out of its scabbard let us not trifle it is furbished and the edge is sharp let us not play with it he who does not prepare for death is more than an ordinary fool he is a madman when the voice of god is heard among the trees of the garden Let fig tree and sycamore and elm and cedar alike hear the sound thereof. Be ready, servant of Christ, for thy master comes on a sudden, when an ungodly world least expects him. See to it that thou be faithful in his work, for the grave shall soon be digged for thee. Be ready. Parents, see that your children are brought up in the fear of God, for they must soon be orphans. Be ready, men of business. Take care that your affairs are correct, and that you serve God with all your hearts, for the days of your terrestrial service will soon be ended, and you will be called to give account for the deeds done in the body, whether they be good or whether they be evil. May we all prepare for the tribunal of the great King, with a care which shall be rewarded, with the gracious commendation. Well done, good and faithful servant. Morning, September the 27th Happy art thou, O Israel, who is like unto thee, O people saved by the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 33 verse 29 He who affirms that Christianity makes men miserable is himself an utter stranger to it. It were strange indeed if it made us wretched, for see to what a position it exalts us. It makes us sons of God. Suppose you that God will give all the happiness to his enemies, and reserve all the mourning for his own family? Shall his foes have mirth and joy, and shall his home-born children inherit sorrow and wretchedness? Shall the sinner who has no part in Christ call himself rich in happiness? And shall we go mourning as if we were penniless beggars? No! We will rejoice in the Lord always, and glory in our inheritance, for we have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but we have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The rod of chastisement must rest upon us in our measure, but it worketh for us the comfortable fruits of righteousness, and therefore, by the aid of the Divine Comforter, we, the people saved of the Lord, will joy in the God of our salvation. We are married unto Christ, and shall our great bridegroom permit his spouse to linger in constant grief? Our hearts are knit unto Him. We are His members, and though for a while we may suffer as our head once suffered, yet we are even now blessed with heavenly blessings in Him. We have the earnest of our inheritance in the comforts of the Spirit, which are neither few nor small. Inheritors of joy forever, we have foretastes of our portion. There are streaks of the light of joy to herald our eternal sunrising. Our riches are beyond the sea. Our city with firm foundations lies on the other side of the river. Gleams of glory from the spirit world cheer our hearts and urge us onward. Truly it is said of us, Happy art thou, O Israel, who is like unto thee, O people saved by the Lord. Evening, September the 27th My beloved put in his hand by the hole of the door, And my bowels were moved for him. Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 4. Knocking was not enough, For my heart was too full of sleep, Too cold and ungrateful to arise and open the door. But the touch of his effectual grace Has made my soul bestir itself. Oh, the long-suffering of my beloved, To tarry when he found himself shut out, And me asleep upon the bed of sloth, Oh, the greatness of his patience, to knock and knock again, and to add his voice to his knockings, beseeching me to open to him! How could I have refused him? Base heart! Blush and be confounded! But what greatest kindness of all is this, that he becomes his own porter, and unbars the door himself? Thrice blessed is the hand which condescends to lift the latch and turn the key. Now I see that nothing but my Lord's own power can save such a naughty mass of wickedness as I am. Ordinances fail. Even the gospel has no effect upon me till his hand has stretched out. Now also I perceive that his hand is good where all else is unsuccessful. He can open when nothing else will. Blessed be his name. I feel his gracious presence even now. Well, may my bowels move for him when I think of all that he has suffered for me and of my ungenerous return. I have allowed my affections to wander. I have set up rivals. I have grieved him. Sweetest and dearest of all beloveds, I have treated thee as an unfaithful wife treats her husband. Oh, my cruel sins, my cruel self, what can I do? Tears are a poor show of my repentance. My whole heart boils with indignation at myself, wretch that I am, to treat my Lord, my all in all, my exceeding great joy, as though he were a stranger. Jesus, thou forgivest freely, but this is not enough. Prevent my unfaithfulness in the future, kiss away these tears, and then purge my heart and bind it with sevenfold cords to thyself, never to wander more morning september the 28th the lord looketh from heaven he beholdeth all the sons of men psalm 33 verse 13 perhaps no figure of speech represents god in a more gracious light than when he is spoken of as stooping from his throne and coming down from heaven to attend to the wants and to behold the woes of mankind we love him who when Sodom and Gomorrah were full of iniquity, would not destroy those cities until he had made a personal visitation of them. We cannot help pouring out our heart in affection to our Lord, who inclines his ear from the highest glory and puts it to the lip of the dying sinner, whose failing heart longs after reconciliation. How can we but love him when we know that he numbers the very hairs of our heads, marks our path, and orders our ways? especially is this great truth brought near to our heart when we recollect how attentive he is, not merely to the temporal interests of his creatures, but to their spiritual concerns. Though leagues of distance lie between the finite creature and the infinite creator, yet there are links uniting both. When a tear is wept by thee, think not that God doth not behold. For like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. Thy sigh is able to move the heart of Jehovah. Thy whisper can incline his ear unto thee. Thy prayer can stay his hand. Thy faith can move his arm. Think not that God sits on high taking no account of thee. Remember that however poor and needy thou art, yet the Lord thinketh upon thee. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. To show himself strong in the behalf of them Whose heart is perfect towards him. Oh, then repent the truth that never tires. No God is like the God my soul desires. He at whose voice heaven trembles, even he, Great as he is, knows how to stoop to me. Evening, September the 28th. Go again seven times. First Kings. Chapter 18, verse 43. Success is certain when the Lord has promised it. Although you may have pleaded month after month without evidence of answer, it is not possible that the Lord should be deaf when his people are in earnest in a matter which concerns his glory. The prophet on the top of Carmel continued to wrestle with God and never for a moment gave way to a fear that he should be non-suited in Jehovah's courts. Six times the servant returned, but on each occasion no word was spoken. But go again. We must not dream of unbelief, but hold to our faith even to seventy times seven. Faith sends expectant hope to look from Carmel's brow, and if nothing is beheld, she sends again and again. So far from being crushed by repeated disappointment, faith is animated to plead more fervently with her God. She is humbled, but not abashed. Her groans are deeper and her sighings more vehement. But she never relaxes her hold or stays her hand. It would be more agreeable to the flesh and blood to have a speedy answer. But believing souls have learned to be submissive and to find it good to wait for as well as upon the Lord. Delayed answers often set the heart searching itself and so lead to contrition and spiritual reformation deadly blows are thus struck at our corruption and the chambers of imagery are cleansed the great danger is lest men should faint and miss the blessing reader do not fall into that sin but continue in prayer and watching at last the little cloud was seen the sure forerunner of torrents of rain and even so with you the token for good shall surely be given and you shall rise as a prevailing prince to enjoy the mercy you have sought. Elijah was a man of like passions with us. His power with God did not lie in his own merits. If his believing prayer availed so much, why not yours? Plead the precious blood with unceasing importunity, and it shall be with you according to your desire. Morning, September the 29th Behold, If the leprosy have covered all his flesh, he shall pronounce him clean that hath the plague. Leviticus, chapter 13, verse 13. Strange enough this regulation appears, yet there was wisdom in it. For the throwing out of the disease proved that the constitution was sound. This morning it may be well for us to see the typical teaching of so singular a rule. We too are lepers and may read the law of the leper as applicable to ourselves. When a man sees himself to be altogether lost and ruined, covered all over with the defilement of sin, and no part free from pollution, when he disclaims all righteousness of his own, and pleads guilty before the Lord, then he is clean through the blood of Jesus and the grace of God. Hidden, unfelt, unconfessed iniquity is the true leprosy. But when sin is seen and felt, it has received its death blow, and the Lord looks with eyes of mercy upon the soul afflicted with it. Nothing is more deadly than self-righteousness, or more hopeful than contrition. We must confess that we are nothing else but sin, for no confession short of this will be the whole truth, and if the Holy Spirit be at work with us, convincing us of sin, there will be no difficulty about making such an acknowledgment. It will spring spontaneously from our lips. What comfort does the text afford to those under a deep sense of sin? Sin mourned and confessed, however black and foul shall never shut a man out from the Lord Jesus. Whosoever cometh unto him, he will in no wise cast out. Though dishonest as the thief, though unchaste as the woman who was a sinner, though fierce as Saul of Tarsus, though cruel as Manasseh, though rebellious as the prodigal, the great heart of love will look upon the man who feels himself to have no soundness in him and will pronounce him clean when he trusts in Jesus crucified. Come to him then, poor heavy-laden sinner. Come needy, come guilty, come loathsome and bare. You can't come too filthy. Come just as you are. Evening september twenty ninth I found him whom my soul loveth. I held him, and would not let him go. Song of Solomon chapter three, verse four Does Christ receive us when we come to him, notwithstanding all our past sinfulness? Does he never chide us for having tried all other refuges first, and is there none on earth like him? Is he the best of all the good, the fairest of all the fair? O then, let us praise him. Daughters of Jerusalem, extol him with timbrel and harp. Down with your idols, up with the Lord Jesus. Now let the standards of pomp and pride be trampled underfoot, but let the cross of Jesus, which the world frowns and scoffs at, be lifted on high. O for a throne of ivory for our King Solomon. Let him be set on high forever and let my soul sit at his footstool, and kiss his feet, and wash them with my tears. Oh, how precious is Christ! How can it be that I have thought so little of him? How is it I can go abroad for joy or comfort when he is so full, so rich, so satisfying? Fellow believer, make a covenant with thine heart that thou wilt never depart from him, and ask thy Lord to ratify it. Bid him set thee as a signet upon his finger, and as a bracelet upon his arm. Ask him to bind thee about him, as the bride decketh herself with ornaments, and as the bridegroom putteth on his jewels. I would live in Christ's heart. In the clefts of that rock my soul would eternally abide. The sparrow hath made a house, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even thine altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, and so too would I make my nest, my home in Thee, and never from Thee may the soul of Thy turtle dove go forth again. But may I nestle close to Thee, O Jesus, my true and only rest. When my precious Lord I find, all my ardent passions glow; Him with cords of love I bind, hold, and will not let Him go. End of September the twenty-third. Through to September the twenty-ninth, recording, by Dave, Krasnoyarsk Russia, www. Whitman.